0: Pope St. John Paul II said that discovering Christ always again and always more fully is the most wonderful adventure of our life. Blazing the Trail is a weekly conversation where we talk about this adventure with courage and hope while sharing stories about what the Holy Spirit is doing in Western Oregon and beyond.
1: And welcome back to Blazing the Trail, where you can hear stories of how God has inspired people to step forward in faith, in hope, and in love, ready to share the beauty of the gospel in their life and in their ministry. I am your host, Miriam Marston. It's always great to be with you each week, and we're going to look at a few topics on this episode, um, from the role of suffering in the spiritual life, uh, to trying to discover God's will for our lives, um, to some practical steps uh, we can take if we want to accompany others towards that deeper relationship with Christ and His Church. And my guest, Tom Lyman, is going to help us navigate these topics as he shares a bit of his own story. Tom is the coordinator of divine worship uh, for the Archdiocese of Boston, in addition to serving as an evangelization consultant in that diocese. So the most prominent symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. In fact, we see it so often that we could take it for granted. And just because it's always there in the background, um, that doesn't guarantee that we've made sense of it or we've considered its role in our life. You know, I actually recall the moment when the image of the cross moved from the background to the foreground uh, for the first time for me. So I went to Catholic school from first grade all the way up to my senior year in high school, and I didn't actually step foot into a public school until I had to take my SATs, and that's where the exams were being held. Um, But I remember sitting at the desk and looking around, and I felt that something was missing. And it took me a few moments uh, to realize, but um, I realized what was missing were the crucifixes from the walls, because in Catholic school, there was just a crucifix or a cross in every room. And that ubiquitous presence of the cross hadn't really sunk in until it wasn't there. And I remember thinking, even in my, to be frank, kind of agnostic mind, that it probably wasn't a good moment not to have a cross in the room because I was about to take a really important test. And there was something reassuring about that Christian symbol, even if I didn't quite know fully what it meant, but I just missed it. And for the record, I did okay on my SATs, but not not great. <laughs> But that cross is, as Tom discovered and as so many others have discovered, it's a sign of hope because it shows us to what depths our Lord went in order to rescue each and every one of us. And this bumps up against every kind of natural and human intuition, which tells us that suffering and pain, it's bad and is to be avoided at all costs. And of course, suffering was not part of God's original plan. But in this fallen, broken world, isn't it astounding that we have a God, a loving Father, who does not abandon us to that pain and that brokenness, but instead has made a kind of road out of that suffering and has showed us the very path to new life, to resurrection. So my guest today will help us walk through this and much more. So please enjoy my conversation with Tom, whose own experience reflects the words of Pope Paul VI, who wrote that man cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Tom Lyman from the Archdiocese of Boston, Uh, Tom serves as the coordinator of divine worship and is an evangelization consultant for the Archdiocese of Boston. Um, You know, regular listeners uh, of the show might have picked up on the fact that they hear a few voices from the East Coast. And there's a really simple reason for that. I'm, I'm from that area. And I had the privilege of meeting some really wonderful and faith-filled people when I worked for the Archdiocese of Boston and for the seminary there. Um, so I'm glad we have this chance to share stories of what God has done and is doing from coast to coast. So Tom, uh, you're one of those people I met back East. Uh-huh. Um, I'm really grateful for your time today. How are things going?
0: Oh, very well. Thank you, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be with you too.
1: Um, Tom, if you could please walk us through a bit of your story. Uh, we want to hear your own experience of evangelization. You're a an evangelization consultant, and I, I can't wait to hear a little bit more about that. But how did you experience evangelization in your own life? Uh, do you recall those early encounters with Jesus Christ, um, and who shared the faith with you? What does that look like?
0: Absolutely, sure. So uh, I'm I grew up in you know about 25 miles west of Boston, small town uh, Catholic family. And, you know, my mother, um, really was the standard bearer for the faith and, uh, you know, taught us first communion classes at home and back in the days when classes were at home. And, um, you know, I was blessed to belong to what I can now recognize and then did too, was a really wonderful parish with a pastor who really cared and did a great deal actually to, um, improve the liturgy in, in ways that really made, you know, that this, this is awesome, that the, that God is awesome. And we're, we're worshiping, uh, almighty God. And you could, you could tell in the beauty of the liturgy and the care that was taken, especially when you traveled somewhere else, you go, oh, this isn't, this isn't the same, you know? And, uh, so we realized we had a, something really special there and many good priests who witnessed to me. And, uh, I, I was an altar boy in my younger days, you know, and, um, uh, <clears throat> I, I always had a desire to serve in that way. I loved being an altar boy. I, I, I had friends training me how to do it. And um, it was a privilege to be so close to the altar in the course of the mass. Um, But uh, I would say in the when I was in the age of high school that, uh, you know, I enjoyed confirmation classes, but I had this sense like I want to know more about my faith. Like I feel feel like there must be something more to it than this. And uh, I didn't I didn't know what it was, but I I had a desire for that. Not to say anything bad about my confirmation class. Sure. uh, But I also knew that when I was confirmed that something special had happened. And I again, I couldn't give words to it, but I I knew that it was something important and real. Uh, For that reason, um, I uh, I sought out a Catholic education in college. I went to public schools all my life. So I went to Providence College and it was there with the Dominicans that. I really did receive that wonderful formation in the faith that I had been hoping to have, you know, and and had all those questions kind of answered, uh, or at least began to be answered. Those questions go on for a lifetime, right? Uh, You know, we could could spend libraries examining some of them. But um, in college, my faith definitely grew. I began to go on different retreats. And I continued to serve as a lector in church. Um, I I was exposed for the first time to Eucharistic adoration, which really wasn't that common prior to the 90s. I saw it for the first time in probably the late 90s there at PC. And um, so I I had a a, a love of our Eucharistic Lord and and a a deep belief in the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. But it wasn't the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist wasn't one of those Big topics, I think, in those days everywhere, you know, like in in the way that I think in faithful Catholic circles it kind of is today. Um, Like if you turned on Catholic radio or EWTN, you you would hear it, you know, mentioned. So anyway, um, I had that belief in the Eucharist and also this fidelity to mass. And so I never missed mass. But if I look back on my life now, I can tell you that I really wasn't. I hadn't yet experienced what I would call a profound conversion. You know, I hmm. uh, might've been someone who was faithful from youth who always went to mass and, and tried to follow the teachings of the church and things like this, but there were still so many ways that um, so much conversion that I had to undergo. And um, I can look back now and see that. So there came a point um, I spent time studying abroad in Italy in college Mm-hmm. And in that time discovered my Italian relatives on my, my mother's side, my grandmother's side. And all around Italy, even in the bars, the barbershop would be a little picture of this guy with a beard, Franciscan probably. And of course i said, I said, who is that? And, they, and they'd say, well, hey, Padre Pio. And, and they, they would kind of quiet down. Padre Pio, you know, like yeah. it's, it, that's Padre Pio. And they began to tell me who he was and, and what an amazing priest he was. And of course at that time he wasn't even beatified. And so everyone already considered him the saint, but he had not been beatified yet. So his cause was still on, on, on way. And then um, I think he was beatified around 2002. No, 2000. Or two, it was late, late 90s. Mm-hmm. And he eventually, I think he was canonized in 2002. And it was when I was in Italy visiting relatives in 02. Mm-hmm. I actually had relatives who used to go to Padre Pio's Mass. It's like they'd drive over, you wow. know, a couple of hours on a Sunday to attend his Mass. Wow. Uh, and these are among the, the thousands of people in post-war Italy, and including U.S. veterans who were in Italy, um, who were deeply affected by this man yeah. and Jesus working through his ministry. Uh, so Padre Pio fascinated me. And there was a great movie about him on Italian TV. And now it's available on DVD here through Ignatius Press. But at the time, it was impossible to come by in the States. And I'm watching it and seeing him get the stigmata. And I said to my relatives, I said, why, why does God do that? You know, right. and he said, he said, it's a gift. It's, suffering is a gift. And I said, how can that be a gift? And I just, I didn't understand suffering yet. I did not understand the cross. I sure I look at it every day, but I did not understand it. And it, you know, anyway, so a pirate Peer is kind of there in the background, I would say. Um, came back to the U.S., began my career, I was teaching in Catholic schools, again, faithful guy, I was enjoying imparting the faith to my students and encouraging them in their life of faith, high school, teaching high school foreign language um, in the Boston area, but um, I still had a long way to go, I still had a lot of questions about certain teachings of the church, or, you know, uh, did I trust the leadership of the church, these kind of things, this was also the terrible time when so much of the Scandal was unfolding in 2002 in Boston. and So we, yeah. we lived that, you know, profoundly, yeah. you know. Um, anyway, thankfully, I was able to move through that because all along I said, these things are bad, but it doesn't change who Jesus is. Yeah. He's the same. He's the same. And this isn't Jesus. And I know that. And I also knew enough good priests to know that there's so many good priests and people ministering in the church that... I was going to stay. I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, so God gave me that that knowledge. Of you know, course, understand we don't minimize anything that happened. So going through that time, um, you know, all along, I really thought that I would be someone who would be married. But I had never honestly prayed about my vocation. Um, but there came a time. Through my involvement at St. Clement's Shrine in Boston, which is one for our listeners, a wonderful community of young adult Catholics in Boston's Back Bay, which is full of college students and young professionals and grad students, people from around the world who come for MIT and Harvard. Is yeah, an average guy from 25 (laughs) miles away from Boston is like meeting people. (laughs) It's like the United Nations. They're like,
1: wow, you know.
0: Um, And as you, I know you're familiar with that too. There, you know, definitely. So um, there at St. Clements, between the preaching of the Oblates, uh, particularly Father Peter Grover, who had a way of demonstrating how God acted in his ordinary life. He would tell very st- ordinary stories about going fishing or working on a house with his dad or taking his mom to the store. I remember these things he said. They're so memorable. Wow. But he would tie them directly to how God was acting in sacred scripture. And I began to say to myself, If God can act in Father Peter's life, these ordinary things, he's not talking about his like separate, not separate, but his priestly life or sacramental life. He's talking about ordinary things that I do. If he can act in Father Peter's life, he can act in my life. And I began to be awakened to the idea that God could act in my life and I could see it if I had the eyes to do it. And, you know, a couple of things happened. So I had been. Um, dating someone at the time. And I really honestly thought that I would have been married Yeah, it was, it was one of those, it, we, we did break up. It was one of those very difficult moments. It, it was probably the most difficult thing that I had been through. And so, you know, uh, anyone who's been through something like that understands, you know, um, so I began to understand suffering because huh. I had suffered. I was beginning to suffer in a way that I never had and I began to understand what the cross was for. I began to understand what real pain was, like why people might turn to remedies that are harmful, you know, why someone might turn to um, filling an emptiness with drugs or rage or violence or, you know, things like this, why that happens, you know, it can come out of suffering, you know? And so I began to go into that dark place, but in it, there was a little light, and this was um, that the Lord was calling me to see how He was acting in my life and what He was doing with this suffering mm-hmm. you know that yeah. that Jesus uh, through his suffering on the cross, transformed the cross into the tree of life for all of humanity, and likewise he was going to do the same thing for me and i, I didn 't know how yet, and that was kind of the exciting thing because I began to learn about the Ignatian spirituality. Um, the discernment of spirits uh, that father Timothy Gallagher speaks so eloquently about. He's written many books. I'm sure some of the listeners may know of them, Um, the examined prayer, um, different things about this. So I attended many of his workshops, uh, in particular, one seminar, a weekend long seminar about the discernment of spirits in the examined prayer and beginning to do that every day having a daily routine of doing it at the same time. it it's much easier when you're single. <laughs> when I was single, I would come home from work and I would kneel down in my room before dinner. I'd say, okay, before I cook anything, I'm going to do this prayer. And it had the effect over time of helping me see God's real action in my life. And that both times good, I could see God's blessings. And in challenging times, I began to see what God may be doing with me or showing me. Even when I didn't want to see it, um, you know, and, and slowly coming to accept God's will for my life mm-hmm. and understanding God had a will for my life and that his will for my life was good. that He actually wanted what was good for me, yeah. you know, that I shouldn't fear what God wanted. I know there were years where I was really afraid of what God wanted for me because I, I think I was afraid he might want me to be a priest. And I was like, oh, no, no, don't make me do that. And Miriam, I know you're laughing here because you know that in fact, in that time period, I began asking that question, what is my vocation? And I began to ask the question in prayer daily, no longer afraid of the answer because I had come across this truth that, that God's will for me would only be good only for my happiness. And I came to the point where I didn't care what his answer would be. And I said, Lord, if you want me to be a priest, I'll be a priest. If you want to be married, I'll do that. If there's something else, I'll do that. Just tell me. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I began to really pray fervently about this, and I was becoming more and more involved in diocesan events, and I think that's the time where we probably met. Mm -hmm. We probably met at a theology on tap that I ran in Quincy on the South Shore of Boston. And um, it was during that time of deep involvement, getting to know a lot of priests, praying about this, that I had a powerful experience in Eucharistic adoration, uh, a very personal encounter with the Lord um, where I was not really praying about my vocation at the moment, mm-hmm. but he made known to me in a very personal way, the love of God, the father, the uh, father's love for me. Um, <clears throat> and he showed me that my life was a gift and that he wanted me to give it back. He wanted me to give it totally mm-hmm. to him. And so that, Wow. Uh, opened me up to that ability to give myself totally. And um, with a spiritual director and through prayer and, and writing in a journal, I, I did discern to apply to seminary. And that's, again, a time when we knew each other because you were working. I was working. I, we have lunch at the same table once in a, once in a while, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I did enter Diocesan Seminary for the Archdiocese of Boston. And I was there for five years. Uh, and that was, again, a beautiful time of formation and brotherhood with so many good men and good priests um, who taught and lived in the seminary. Um, the beautiful liturgies and times of prayer that we shared. Um, but there came a point where, for some reason, uh, it wasn't quite the right thing. And what was tough about it was that I didn't hate it. I didn't yeah. hate seminary life or yeah. the idea of the priesthood. In fact, I had so many good priest friends, and good experiences serving in parishes and things like that. Um, but there was something uh, some, somehow missing. Um, and I couldn't put my finger on it, I did not think that it was that I was necessarily called to marriage. Um, but I left the seminary uh, with the option of returning, you know, and, and completing my studies, um, you know, like a year later or something like that. Uh, I began to work you know, teaching at a local high school, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was in that time I said to myself, you know, I'm just going to live my life and be who Tom Lyman is. I'm going to pray. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be sociable. I'm going to see my old friends and priest friends, seminary friends, lay friends. And so I did that. And but I did say to myself, I didn't want to do anything, make any big decisions, uh, for like a year. That's very Ignatian of you. He's
1: very careful (laughs) decision-making.
0: Yeah, yeah you know at least that was the intention but yeah. by February of that ye- of that year, I did meet a young woman yeah. introduced to me by uh, a, a mutual seminarian friend. Um, she was a uh, prisoner in the parish she was serving and he introduced us um, at a parish event and um, the rest is history and now uh, Lauren and I got married uh, two years later two and a half years later and now we got married that was 2016 so fifth anniversary coming up. Next week, wow. and we have three beautiful children: age, Andy, who's four; Emma, who's um, twenty-two months; and Anthony, who is ten months. Oh wow! So God. busy little house over here. In uh, I'm
1: sure. Oh my Washington. goodness! Praise yeah. God! And and again, it goes back to God asking you to give a gift of yourself, and that you were open to that. And this is the pathway that He laid before you, and you just weren't quite sure what it was going to look like. But in the end, that gift has happened
0: (laughs) it has happened it's unfolding
1: right now yeah
0: it's unfolding and it it continues to unfold i mean it's um you know just like with with every child you know the the history of the world changes a little bit you know it's going to be different they're different people you know and um what god will do with and our family changes every time somebody new comes you know when anthony our littlest uh, just you know arrives you know uh during the pandemic you know october of the pandemic Um, wow, that changed everything. You know, he came a little fast. And so, um, you know, we, we just had a baby and then we had another baby. We're like, Oh my goodness. And so, um, but he's such a gift, you know, Um, and there's something about a little baby that just makes you slow down and say, Oh my goodness. You know?
1: Yeah. Um, For those who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Tom Lyman, who's the coordinator for divine worship, as well as an evangelization consultant for the Archdiocese of Boston Tom, we have a few minutes left. And in that time, I just wanted to hear how, you know, these profound experiences that you had, how then how is that translated, for instance, into your work being an evangelization consultant? How are you kind of bringing that into your work in ministry these days?
0: Yes. Well, I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that I do, I work with parishes um, all over the Archdiocese, especially south of Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often developing a local pastoral plan for evangelization or even just developing evangelization initiatives. But mm-hmm. the way in which my experience informs what I do is that when I can look back, I can see certain elements in my own experience that I think are very rather they can be universally applicable. In other words, uh, faith grows in a community, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not a, the Catholic faith is not a, uh, it, it's, it, it's not an independent sport. It's a team sport,
1: yeah. you know,
0: and you, you can't, it, you can't do it alone. You know, it's it can be good to think of it almost like a, um, I know people say crew rowing is really an excellent metaphor for the church. Yeah. Never done it, watched it, you know, uh, team can't do that alone. Can't row a big boat like that alone, you know? And so, uh, the need for certain, to encourage certain, um, aspects of parish life or or certain conditions that allow for evangelization is essential in other words having a community that is open that is welcoming um in other words where you can meet new people and actually it's not just about the people who are already there but they're excited to welcome someone in in our outward oriented are thinking about oh i this somebody new i never seen them let's welcome them you know rather than oh who's who's that i don't know that you know it, it, we need to have, as Catholics and parishes, that kind of welcoming attitude, but also to have what I, what I like to call like a landing pad, you know, or a runway for people when they are new and coming into a place. What can uh, you invite them to that might be low threshold, but, but, but you know, not, not you know, necessarily, a, you know, a hardcore Bible study. But what's something you can get them to that would be a chance for them to get to know others? to deepen in their faith, to learn a little bit more about prayer, you know, and to encounter the Lord uh, mm-hmm. also providing opportunities to encounter God. How can we uh, make the sacraments more available? Adoration, mm-hmm. confession, um, even just chances to talk with a priest or a member of the staff. Um, yeah. So many people have questions. You know, when I meet people at workshops, so often older folks say to me, I was never able to ask the questions I had. Wow. You know, years ago you were told this, I think this is, this is what the church teaches. This is it, you know, believe it, take it or leave it. People do like, they, adults learn by asking questions and having them answered yeah. and digesting and coming back, you know, and I, that's one thing I think when a platform we need to provide, whether we're doing something like, um, discovering Christ or alpha or, uh, uh light of the world retreats where people can as adults, um, come to understand who is God. Who am I? Why? Why is everything wrong in the world? Why? Why? What's everything wrong with me?
1: Yeah.
0: And how can I get help with that? How, wh- wh- what is this thing, grace? You know how? You know. And so, providing platforms for that. We don't specify programs. We will help you pick them. But we want ideal, ideally, for places to have these conditions for the message of Jesus for the evangelization to take root in people and in families.
1: I love it. I love it. That's a a wonderful note to end on, Tom. I am so grateful for just your uh, steadfast and growing yes to the Lord over the years. And I just thank God for the gift of uh, the vocation that he led you to as well. And I just ask that God continue to bless you, your family, your work, your ministry in the days and months and years to come.
0: Thanks so much, Mary. It's a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Thank you, Tom. Take care. Tom recounts how he was struck by the witness of a priest in Boston, uh, Father Peter, who was describing how he could see God at work in his life in pretty ordinary ways. And Tom thought to himself, well, if God can act in Father Peter's life, then he can act in mine. So, As he tells us, he was awakened to the idea that God could concretely act in his life and that this spiritual phenomenon wasn't just something that happened in other people's lives. It's for everyone. And really, we won't get far in discerning what God wants us to specifically do if we don't already have a firm grip on what God wants for all of us universally. And what is that thing that God desires for all of humanity— Well, let's look at the very first words of the Catholic Catechism, which is the text that brings together all of Catholic teaching, and we read this, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in Himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make Him share in His own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek Him to know Him, to love Him with all His strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of His family, the Church. To accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son as Redeemer and Savior. In His Son and through Him He invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, His adopted children and thus heirs of His blessed life. Again, that's from the first paragraph in the prologue of the Catechism. And you know, in just those few sentences, we hear the word blessed three times. In the first sentence, we hear a reference to a plan of sheer goodness. This is just amazing news for us, isn't it? Right out of the gate, right there on page one, we hear that God is good and has a plan to draw us to Himself so that we can abide with Him forever. In the conclusion of that prologue in the Catechism, we read, By love, God has revealed Himself and given Himself to man. He has thus provided the definitive, superabundant answer to the questions that man asks himself about the meaning and purpose of his life. So, in that same spirit this week, let's really dive into those words in the Gospel of John. As we hear Jesus tell us that He came so that we might have life— and have it more abundantly. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please join me next week as we continue to blaze a trail in Western Oregon and beyond. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all.
0: You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, produced through the studios of the Archdiocese of Portland. Join us in our mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ across Western Oregon by visiting archdpdx.org.